the book of Deuteronomy, uh, chapter 11. And if you need a Bible, just lift up your hands. And the ushers will bring you a Bible so you can follow along in our Bible study. Now, as you know by now, the book of Deuteronomy is a series of three sermons that were given by Moses during the past month of his life, just prior to the children of Israel going into the promised land, that which had been promised to Abraham over 400 years before this time. They're just on the cusp of entering into that promise. And Moses is basically giving his last words uh, to them through these three sermons that we have that we call the book of Deuteronomy. You also know by now that the theme of all three of those sermons is the same. The theme of all three sermons is obedience. And as we come to chapter 11, guess what the theme of chapter 11 is? Good, you're right. It's obedience. Now, I find it quite marvelous, quite incredible, that thus far in the book of Deuteronomy, as we've come 11 chapters now into our study, we've only really been given one little chunk of what it is that we're to obey. You recall in chapter 5 when he quoted the Ten Commandments. Uh, And so far, that's it. Otherwise, for 11 chapters, all he's been doing is telling us Be careful to obey. He hasn't even told us yet what we're to obey, except for just a a little bit. He's about to get into that. As we get into chapter 12, he's going to start soft and then really get into, uh, you know, the heart and soul of uh, of the statutes and commandments and ordinances uh, of the Lord. But so far, he's told us very little of that. And over and over and over again, he's just saying, listen, obey, obey obey right now notice with me in verse one he says this he says therefore thou shalt love the lord thy god and keep his charge and his statutes and his judgments and his commandments always now when i read this i said man moses you really are getting on in age because i've heard this come out of your mouth just a couple times so far in this study So I counted, and I said, how many times has Moses used this phrase so far in Deuteronomy? And between chapter 4 and this point here, this is the 15th time that Moses has used this phrase. You know, more or less, you know, changing a word or two, but this language right here. By the end of this chapter, he'll have used it 21 times. So six more times he's going to use this sentence In this chapter, it gives us a real good idea what he's trying to get across to us, isn't it? (laughs) I think he's trying to make a point. I remember one time I had a piano teacher growing up. And, you know, as a young piano student, I never wanted to practice. That was always the hardest thing. And so I would, like most kids do, cram about a half an hour before the piano lesson to try to make it look like I, I had been doing my work all week. But the piano teacher always saw right through that. And I remember one thing that she always said to me was that the the human brain, and I don't know where she got this from, but she said that the human brain has to hear something or do something 21 times before it becomes memory, permanent memory, 21 times. And I always remembered that. And so I thought it was interesting that by the end of chapter 11, 21 times Moses has said... (laughs) (laughs) this phrase, to be obedient unto the Lord. Maybe she got it from the book of Deuteronomy. I don't know. But he gets on now this topic of obedience, as this is the theme of the chapter, and everything in this chapter somehow reflects that. Notice what he says as we jump in now in verse 2. He says, And know ye this day, for I speak not with your children, which have not known and which have not seen the chastisement of the Lord your God, his greatness, his mighty hand, and his stretched out arm, 
and his miracles and his acts, which he did in the midst of Egypt unto Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and unto all his land. And what he did unto the army of Egypt and unto their horses and to their chariots and how he made the water of the Red Sea to overflow them as they pursued after you and how the Lord hath destroyed them unto this day. And what he did unto you in the wilderness until you came into this place. And what he did unto Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, the sons of Reuben. How the earth opened her mouth and swallowed them up and their households and their tents and their substance that was in their possession in the midst of all Israel. And so he basically sums up all of their history of experience with God. You have seen, not your children, not anybody else, but you that I'm speaking with right now, you have seen all that the Lord has done for you. His chastisement, the way that he was involved in nurturing you and growing you up and training you and teaching you and leading you in his ways. Not just his involvement, but also your redemption. How he set you free from Egypt. You saw what he did to Pharaoh and to his armies and how he overthrew them in the Red Sea. And not just your deliverance, but also your sustenance as he preserved you as you walked in the wilderness for four years. And not just that, but also how he purified you. And he brings up the incident with Korah and Dathan and Abiram where there was a rebellion in the camp and the Lord squashed it, so to speak, and purified that which was seeking to hinder or you resist what it was that God was doing in his people. And he brings all of this up to them and he says, you have seen it. And then in verse 7 he says, but your eyes have seen all the great acts of the Lord which he did. Therefore shall you keep all the commandments which I command you this day that you may be strong and go in and possess the land whither you go to possess it. Two times in this section, in these verses, he says, I'm not speaking to anyone else but unto you. And then after what he says that they saw, he says, it's your eyes that have seen this. And so therefore, you are accountable to what you have seen. And when it comes to this thing of obedience and obedience to God and as it relates to our lives, I'm always comforted to realize that we are only accountable for what we have been shown. We're only accountable for the light that has been revealed to us. God only holds us responsible to obey what we know. And that makes sense, doesn't it? You can't expect someone to obey something that they don't know or that hasn't been told to them. People often ask the question of you and of me, they say, how is God going to judge the pygmy? The guy on the island that has never been exposed to the gospel message or has never been given a New Testament or never heard the message of a missionary, how is God going to deal with that person? Will they be eternally damned because they never heard the gospel? Because the only way a person can be saved is if they receive Christ and they're born again. Well, what about the person that never has the opportunity to do it? How is God going to judge them? Here's the answer. Righteously. God is going to judge them with perfect righteousness. In Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says that there are two messengers that are universal. The first is creation. The creation itself testifies to the fact that there is a God. And there is light that is revelation of God that is revealed through what God made. And for the person that's never heard the gospel, they will be held accountable somewhat by what is known or can be known of God just simply through the creation. The second voice that is universal that touches every person that's ever breathed air on this planet is the testimony of conscience. That God will hold people that have not heard the gospel accountable to whether or not they obeyed their conscience. That inner voice that is present within every person that stems from the God-given seed inside that speaks this is right and this is wrong. And that is known from even, you know, the earliest of ages. And so God will judge according to that. 
And the decisions that he makes in those things will be absolutely fair and absolutely righteous. In Revelation chapter 19, verses 1 and 2, when all of God's plan is wrapped up and all of the multitude of those that have been saved as well as the angels and everyone are gathered around the throne of God, it says there that that the, the voices speak and the words that they say is, true and righteous are your judgments, O Lord. In other words, when it's all said and done, every single person that has seen every single thing and has now understanding of how it all works will say, God, you handled everything perfectly righteous and perfectly fair. There was not one ounce of shadiness in the decisions that you made. Now, that's the answer as it concerns the guy on the island. But for you and for me, we have a whole lot of light. We not only have the gospel message preached to us and preached freely in our country, but we have Bibles, millions of Bibles at our disposal. We also have churches where the Bible is taught week after week, day after day, homes where Bible is is shared and verses are put on walls. And I mean, we are exposed to the truth of God constantly. And regardless of how God judges the guy on the island, you and I have a whole lot of light and a whole lot of understanding. And certainly we will be held accountable for how we obeyed God in proportion to the light that we've received. Well, you say, well, then doesn't it make sense that we should stay in the dark? If we're judged according to the light we have and we are not held accountable for what we don't know, then shouldn't we just not know that's foolishness? Because for a person to be saved... By pure reason, it stands to reason that they love God, right? And the Bible says that God is light. And so a person that wants to know God or that does know God has to know as much as they can about God. They want to be in the light. They love the light. Jesus said that. He said that those that are saved come to me. They come to the light to be saved. So we want light. We don't want to stay in darkness because we won't be accountable. We want to be in the light because we want to know him. We want to please him, right? We love him because he first loved us. Furthermore, there are certain advantages to light. Read on with me. He says in verse 9, he says, And that you may prolong your days in the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers to give unto them and to their seed. A land that floweth with milk and honey. For the land where you go in to possess it is not as the land of Egypt from whence you came out. Where you sowed thy seed and watered it with thy foot as a garden of herbs. Now in Egypt they had a a constant and abundant supply of water. It was the Nile River. They worshipped the Nile River. Because of the abundance of water that was constantly there. They considered the Nile River to be the cradle of life. Because they could get as much water as they needed. The problem was, in order to extract the water from the Nile to irrigate their fields, they had to use foot pumps to do it. Treadmill-like mechanisms that would require the energy and effort of men and their diligence thereon to constantly be pumping water from the Nile to the fields to irrigate the crops. It was an abundant water supply, but it sure was a headache and a hassle to get it from the river where it was to the fields where it was going. And it was work. It was hard. It was sweat. It was toil. And they were, by and large, dependent upon their own energy and their own effort to make things happen. That was Egypt. Now he draws the contrast. He says in verse... uh, 11, he says, but the land whither you go to possess it is a land of hills and valleys that drinketh water of the rain of heaven. First of all, the land that you're going has natural advantages. It's a land that is well watered from the dew of the heavens. Not the effort of your feet and you're pumping it up, but rather that which God provides freely. Not only natural advantage, but verse 12, he says, A land which the Lord thy God careth for. For the eyes of the Lord thy God are always upon it from the beginning of the year, even unto the end of the year. 
the eyes of the Lord are also upon this land. Not only is there natural advantage, but there is also divine favor. Now we know by now that the promised land physically for Israel has a spiritual application for you and for me. See, when it comes to the context of obeying God and walking in the light, there is, for you and I, there is a a, a life that we used to live in darkness. When we didn't know God, we didn't walk with God, we weren't obedient to God, we didn't care about God. And the mark of that kind of life is that we had to, by our own effort, make things happen for ourselves. There's a land of opportunity out there for us. You can be whatever you want to be. You can be the most you can be in the army. You know, there, there's all kind of opportunity for anyone and everyone to take it. But it's up to you to make it happen. Pump your feet and get going. Work it up. Pump it up. Make it happen. But see, in the Lord, in the light, when you walk with him, what he gives to us The life that we have, the promised life, the life in the promised land, the spiritual life that God gives to us. The blessing of God upon us is not contingent upon our effort. It's not about if we can make it happen or how hard we work or the effort that we put in. But rather, it's just simply a gift of his grace. He gives to us natural advantages in the spiritual life. He makes things happen for us that we could never do for ourselves. He also tells you and I, the believers, his promised, you know, that believe in his promises, that his eyes are constantly upon the righteous, that we experience divine favor. And so in the context of obeying God, it's to our advantage to obey him, to have light and then to walk in that light. Because it means that we're going to receive the blessing of God upon our lives. And who doesn't want the blessing of God upon their life? See, the land that he's bringing us into is not like Egypt. It's completely different from Egypt. It's a land of hills and valleys, a land of milk and honey, a land where there's water from heaven, natural advantages, and the eyes of the Lord, the divine favor, are constantly upon us. Well, how does that work? God's provision, God's blessing, but my involvement. What part do I play in that? Read with me in verse 13. He says, and it shall come to pass, if you shall hearken diligently unto my commandments, which I command you this day, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, that I will give you the rain of heaven, or I'm sorry, that I will give you the rain of your land in his due season, the first rain and the latter rain, that thou may gather in thy corn and thy wine and thine oil, and I will send grass in thy fields for thy cattle, that thou mayest eat and be full. Here's how it works. God says, your responsibility, your part in this promised life in my son, your part is this, you stay close to me. You worship me, you keep your heart right before me, you obey my commands and my precepts my principles and you walk with me you stay as close to me as you can and here's what's going to happen there's always going to be rain the dew of heaven the satisfaction of the spirit's presence in your life is constantly going to be with you there's going to be rain not just rain but there's also going to be fruit jesus said that if we abide in him our lives would bear much fruit and so his spirit his presence with us is going to result in fruit coming forth out of our lives in abundance. It's how he calls it here. He says, gather in thy corn and thy wine and thine oil. And then not only that, but he says, I will send grass in thy fields for thy cattle uh, that you may eat and be full. And that is, there will be a tended pasture. Is that the soil of your soul will be fertile and soft. And that will be the result of a person's life who stays close to the Lord. You stay close to the Lord. On the contrary, now, verse 16, he says, Take heed to yourselves, that your heart be not deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. And then the Lord's wrath be kindled against you, and he shut up the heaven. First of all, there will be drought. That there be no rain, and that the land yield not her fruit. There won't be fruit. Number two, And then 
3, lest ye perish quickly from off the good land which the Lord giveth you. The third thing is that you won't have tended fertile pasture, but you'll be losing pasture. You'll be losing ground to the enemy. You'll see things drying up in your life. You'll see your fruit withering, and you'll see your landline receding. Not your hairline. That happens anyway. But your landline, the territory that you've taken from the Lord, you'll watch that dwindling. And it's very simple. God says, if you just walk with me, if you'll give heed to my commands and do what it is that I'm telling you to do and just keep your life close, keep your love hot towards me, you're going to see blessing and abundance and, and, and spiritual richness in your life. But if you turn aside, if you draw back, if you begin to you know, say it's not important to walk in the ways of the Lord? Well, here's how you'll know when you're going that direction. There will be drought spiritually. And your fruit will begin to wither. You'll begin to see the flesh begin to grow and crop up again in your life. And you'll lose territory. Areas where you had conquered before, where there was victory, you'll begin to sense struggle and defeat again. And so God says, just stay close to me. So, if we're to love the light and we're to walk in the light, then it stands to reason that we should absorb the light. Verse 18, he says, Therefore shall ye lay up these my words in your heart and in your soul and bind them for a sign upon your hand that they may be as frontlets between your eyes. And you shall teach them to your children, speaking of them when you sit in your house, And when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up, and you shall write them upon the doorposts of thine house and upon thy gates. So let my word, if you want to walk in the light, if you want to experience my richness, you need my word. So let it be in your heart and in your soul and upon your hand what you do and between your eyes what you see and your outlook on life and what you say, speaking of them, in your house and to your kids and write them. Let them be an influence to you constantly and everywhere, everywhere you go. Verse 21, that your days may be multiplied and the days of your children in the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers to give them as the days of heaven upon the earth. For if you shall diligently keep all these commandments which I command you to do them, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and to cleave unto him. We're up to number 19, by the way, right there in verse 22 uh, with that phrase. And so he takes it one step further in the same vein, the same line of staying close to him. He says in verse 23, he says, Then will the Lord your God drive out all these nations from before you, And you shall possess greater nations and mightier than yourselves. Every place whereon the soles of your feet shall tread shall be yours. From the wilderness and Lebanon, from the river, the river Euphrates, even unto the uttermost sea shall your coast be. There shall no man be able to stand before you, for the Lord your God shall lay the fear of you and the dread of you upon all the land that you shall tread upon as he hath said unto you. Now, not only will your nearness to the Lord provide you with spiritual satisfaction, rain, fruit, and fertile pasture, but it will also result in God taking care of every other thing that you need. Isn't it interesting that they're about to go into a major war? They're about to go into the land of Canaan where they are commanded to completely obliterate all of the people, all of the armies that are represented there in that land. And yet, isn't it interesting that not once, not once, does God say, learn how to fight. All he says is stay close to me and I'll take care of the rest. And that's true in every area of your life and in mine. God never tells us, learn how to fight. Learn how to fundraise. Learn how to generate income. Learn how to cause things to multiply. Learn how to produce and be productive. He never tells us those things. What he tells us to do is seek first the kingdom of God. And all these other things will be added to you. And that's the principle that he's driving home here in this chapter. 
is listen, stay close to me, God says, and every other thing will be taken care of. Don't worry about it. I've got it covered. You're going to win your battles. You're going to see the land productive. You're going to see yourselves blessed and in fruitful place. Just stay close to me. And then he sums it up. He nails it home on this theme of obedience here in these closing verses of chapter 11. Notice in verse 26. He says, Behold, I set before you this day a blessing and a curse. A blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you this day. And a curse if you will not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside out of the way which I command you this day to go after other gods which you have not known. And it shall come to pass when the Lord thy God hath brought thee in unto the land whither thou goest to possess it, that thou shalt put the blessing upon Mount Gerizim and the curse upon Mount Ebal. Now, those are two mountains in the land around the middle of Israel. If you look at it on the map uh, around the area that would be known as Samaria, two mountains that were just close to each other with a valley in between that where, you know, I mean, I've never tried this myself, but that the word on the street is that if you shout from the top of one of those hills or mountains, you can hear it on the other side and it reverberates down through the valley. He, he gets into it more when we get to chapter 28. So we'll, we'll spend more time on it there. But he says in verse 30, Are they not on the other side Jordan, by the way where the sun goeth down, in the land of the Canaanites, which dwell in the campaign over against Gilgal, beside the plains of Morah? For you shall pass over Jordan to go in to possess the land which the Lord your God giveth you. And you shall possess it and dwell therein. And you shall observe to do all the statutes and judgments which I set before you this day. That's number 21. uh, As far as how many times he's repeated this phrase, this call for them to obey. Get the idea that obedience is a very important thing. And it is. Obedience is a very important thing as it relates to our relationship with God. But do you know that I discovered some years ago that there is a substance in the spiritual life that is even more powerful than obedience? Do you know what it is? It's grace. Grace is a much, and and grace does not allow disobedience. They're not contrary to one another. But, But I've discovered that grace walks alongside of obedience. It complements it, but it's a much more powerful thing. See, for years in my Christian life, I I sought to please God by obeying God. I wanted to please Him. I was appreciative for my salvation and what He did for me. And so I would read His Word, and I would see what He wanted, and then I would incline my path to walk according to what He said. And I wanted to obey God. The problem was, I never could find the power in and of myself to do the things that God wanted me to do. And no matter how hard I tried, no matter what promises I would make or what pledges I would take to to, to try to keep myself on that path, no matter what scripture I would memorize or concepts I would, I would you know, adhere to or sermons I would listen to or Bible studies I would attend, no matter what I did, inevitably, I would always come to a place where I would fail. And I remember it happening on a, on a number of occasions where, you know, I thought I was doing good with God and, and I was having a real good stretch. Things were going real well. And then I would go through something, whether it would be given into a temptation or, uh, you know, just a series of things or, or, or just a gradual slide maybe drifting off a little bit into the path imperceptibly. But then when you come to a point and you realize, well, I, I'm really not where I'm supposed to be right now. And I remember a few occasions like that where all of a sudden God just allowed kind of a moment of clarity. And he allowed me to, to see with my own eyes that through all of my effort, through all of my education, through all of my devotion and the things that I was doing, I had progressed minus three steps in my Christian faith from the first day. And I remember on those occasions just weeping. Weeping. I remember one time crystal clear in my mind right now on my pillow one night, just realizing that I'd tried so hard and I'd put so much in and I had gone absolutely nowhere. I'd progressed nothing in my Christian life. 
And it was almost overwhelming in me to realize that all that work yielded absolutely nothing. What a joy and a delight it was to my heart when I learned what grace was. That we don't please God by our obedience. We cannot please God based upon our obedience. We please God by faith in what his son did. And our obedience is empowered by his spirit in response to our love for his son. And what a joy it is to the Christian who is set free from the trap of trying to please God with obedience and that relates to him through the spirit of his son, the spirit of grace. Grace, it's so important in the Christian life. We cannot please God. You can't. You have no power in your flesh to do anything that is pleasing to God. You can't get victory over sin in your flesh. You can't fight the devil in your flesh. You can't do anything in the power of your flesh. He, through the power of his spirit, can help you to do all things through Christ who strengthens you. But on your own, on our own, we can do nothing. Obedience is important, yes. Grace is much more powerful. So, chapter 11, obedience. Chapter 12 now, he begins to talk about the things that are important. And chapter 12 is all about the order of worship. The order of worship once they come into the promised land. Notice with me in verse 1. He says, These are the statutes and the judgments which you shall observe to do in the land which the Lord God of thy fathers giveth thee to possess it all the days that you live upon the life. So now these are the statutes. Now he's going to tell us this is what you obey. Verse 2. You shall utterly destroy all the places wherein the nations which you shall possess served their gods upon the high mountains and upon the hills and under every green tree. And you shall overthrow their altars and break their pillars and burn their groves with fire. And you shall hew down the graven images of their gods and destroy the names of them out of that place. The first principle, the first precept that is given concerning the order of worship for God's people in the land that they're going into is that they are to completely annihilate the influence of the pagan gods. The pagan order of worship is that they would worship however they wanted, however their flesh dictated, in sexually perverse ways, in groves and in you know places that they would create, and God is saying that you're to completely eliminate those things. That there's to be no mixture between what I am telling you and with what you will see them doing and hear of what they did there in that place. Completely eliminate it. That's number one. Then he says in verse 4, he says, this is what you shall do. You shall not do so unto the Lord your God. But unto the place which the Lord your God shall choose out of all your tribes to put his name there, even unto his habitation shall you seek. And thither shalt thou come. And thither you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices and your tithes and your heave offerings and your hand, of your hand and your vows and your free will offerings and the firstlings of your herds and of your flocks. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God and you shall rejoice in all that you put your hand unto you and your households, wherein the Lord thy God hath blessed thee. Now, there is a huge difference between Old Testament worship and New Testament worship. What God is essentially speaking to his people in these verses is that you're not to worship, that is, bring your sacrifices, your offerings, the bulls and the goats and, you know, the, 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 all the various sacrifices that they were commanded to make. You are not to do that in any place that you so desire. But you're to bring those things to the prescribed location. Ultimately, that will be Jerusalem, where the temple is built. They weren't allowed to just build an altar in their backyard or 
somewhere in their local village to make it convenient, but rather they had to do it where God said, and that was the place that they worshipped. Now, in the New Testament, it's a vastly different picture. First of all, we don't worship God by bringing lambs and bulls and goats and, you know, different things that we offer and sacrifice upon an altar to God. Our worship is not the offering of sacrifices. Our worship is in response to God offering the sacrifice of his son for sin on our behalf. And so for you and for me, our offering that we bring is something that's already been accomplished. We don't sacrifice anymore. We trust in the Lamb of God that shed his blood for the sins of the world once and forever. And our response to that, according to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, our response to that is that we now bring to God a sacrifice of praise. The fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. That's, that's the offering, is that we receive his gift and then we give thanks for it. That's, that's the offering that we give. Now, the other thing that's different between the Old Testament and the New Testament worship is that there is no prescribed place where the New Testament Christian worships. Jesus said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The presence of God's Holy Spirit that has been given to us as we received Christ means that we are one with him and therefore our sanctuary is everywhere. Sometimes, you know, you know, we see people come in here during the week and, and they'll come in and, you know, maybe you have a conversation. You say, hey, what's going on? They say, oh, I, I just wanted to come in and spend some time with God. Now, if you're doing that because you're looking for a quiet place, that's great. But if you're doing it because you think, well, this is where God is, well, then you're mistaken. Because, yes, this is the Lord's place. And, yes, the Lord is here. But guess what? The Lord is also out there. (laughs) He's also in your car with you while you're driving to work. He's also laying in your bed when you first open up your eyes and, 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 you know, you're first seeing the morning light. He's there with you, too. Everywhere you are, the Lord is with you as a New Testament Christian. I remember when I was down in the city, you know, there, there, were, um, there were some dark days there, you know. And I remember on several occasions, I would go into these like dungeon-like rooms that were just, you know, six-sided concrete rooms. And they were just dark and cold and disgusting. But there is one great thing about a six-sided dark construction enclosed, I mean, concrete enclosed rooms. You know what it is? There's awesome acoustics. And I used to go in there and I would just sing. And, and no, there was nobody else around. Nobody could hear me. And I had church in a concrete dungeon underground in Manhattan. And it was incredible because the Lord is there, you see. <laughs> and, and wherever you are, the Lord is there. See, so our worship is not in a prescribed location. But rather, it's the Lord is with us constantly. However, There is a principle that's being explained here that you and I do well to apply to our lives. Although there is not a prescribed place where worship must happen, it is a biblical principle that we are to come collectively to a place to worship. And we see in the points of what Moses described to them here, the kind of things and the kind of reasons why God wants us to come to a place unified and worship collectively. What are they? Well, first of all, it says that here that there will be a place where the Lord will put his name. That there is a prescribed place where the Lord will put his name. In the book of Revelation, chapter 1, we read about the seven golden lampstands. John sees into heaven, and he sees the seven golden lampstands, and then he sees Jesus there walking in the midst of those seven golden lampstands. And then he tells us what those lampstands are, what they represent. You know what they represent? The churches. That Jesus is into church. He walks in the churches. And and so he's into church, and therefore he calls us to be part of the church. And to be involved in unified collective worship in church 
And he says, I walk there. I walk in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. And so his name is in, in, in his house, in his place. And he calls us to go there. Well, what else do we do there? He says, there you bring your offerings. Again, Hebrews 13, verse 5. Not an offering of a bull or a lamb, but the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. We praise him collectively, universally. And then he says there in verse 7, that there you shall eat. The church is a place where we get fed. It's what we're doing right now. We're feasting upon the word of God. We're allowing his word to satisfy and build up our faith and our souls. And so we come to church to be with the Lord as he walks in our midst, to bring the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name, the offering of our praise, and to feed upon the feast of his word. And so we're to do that. But there's also something that we're not to do. Notice with me in verse 8. He says, you shall not do after all the things that we do here this day. Every man whatsoever is right in his own eyes. For you are not yet come to the rest and to the inheritance which the Lord your God giveth you. But when you go over Jordan and dwell in the land which the Lord your God giveth you to inherit, And when he giveth you rest from all your enemies round about you so that you dwell in safely, then there shall be a place which the Lord your God shall choose to cause his name to dwell there. Thither shall you bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and your heath offering of your hand and all your choice vows which you vow unto the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. You and your sons and your daughters and your men servants and your maidservants and the Levite that is within your gates, for as much as he, as he hath no part nor inheritance with you, take heed to thyself that you offer not thy burnt offerings in every place that you see, but in the place which the Lord shall choose, in one of thy tribes where thou shalt offer thy burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I command thee. Notwithstanding, you may kill and eat flesh, that is, you can eat meat, you can have a barbecue, in all thy gates, whatsoever thy soul lusteth after, according to the blessing of the Lord thy God, which he has given thee. The unclean and the clean may eat thereof. That is, whether they're ceremonially clean or not, the person, it doesn't matter, as of the roebuck or as of the heart. That is, if you are hunting and you take a, 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 a deer, a roebuck, a heart, and you want to have a barbecue, that's fine. But you can't build an altar, offer it to the Lord, and then eat it. See, if you're going to bring an offering to the Lord, it must be done in Jerusalem, in the place that I will prescribe where those things are to take place. And then in verse 16, only you shall not eat the blood, you shall pour it out uh, upon the earth as in water. So what is God essentially telling them here? He says, first of all, that they are not to do whatsoever they think is right in their own eyes. In the book of Judges, we see that phrase used several times. The people had drifted from their adherence to the Lord. So soon, just the book of Judges, not that far into their future. And it tells us over and over again in in that book that the people, that the way that they lived is that they did whatever was right in their own eyes. And God says, you're not to do that. You're not to just worship however you want. The same thing is true for the New Testament Christian. We are not to just worship God however we see fit. That's one of the reasons why he calls us to gather together and assemble ourselves, you know, constantly as a church. It's because there's doctrinal accountability. See, when we all come together and we all worship the Lord together and learn of the Lord together, it's very difficult to just do, say whatever we want or to believe whatever we want. We're all measuring according to the same rule. We're all reading the same Bible. But when a person just says, you know what, I'm just going to, I don't like church. They're all hypocrites there, and they're not that spiritual. I'm, I'm on a different level. I'm more committed to the Lord than they are. And he talks to me in a deeper way than what I can get from going to that place. Be careful. 
because you're on a fast track to doing what's right in your own eyes and to believing false doctrine. I've known many people like that, that say, ah, the church, it's not necessary. I don't need to go there. I don't need to do that. And it isn't long before you find out why they're really not going to church. Well, you see, I'm, I'm deeper than them. I'm actually a patriarchal prophet. I, I'm like Abraham and Jacob. Really? Wow. What does that mean? And it doesn't take long. Well, it means, third of all, that I can have as many wives as I want. See? <laughs> and it doesn't take long to, to figure out what's really going on there. And so church is important for doctrinal accountability. Also, if you notice there in verse 11, church is important because there's a distinction. Let, let me read it again. It says, Then there shall be a place which the Lord your God shall choose to cause his name to dwell there, and there you shall bring all that I command you. And so he's, he's speaking again about the offerings, and he's saying that there, there is to be a place. And in, in your life and in mine, there should be a place. Not necessarily, you know, I'm not, again, saying that God resides in a building. But what I am saying is that there should be a distinction in our lives between our relationship with the Lord and with everything else that we do. Peter wrote to the church, I think it's 1 Peter 3 something, it'll come up on the screen, but he said this, he said, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Sanctify the Lord, that means separate the Lord in your heart. In the age of the internet that we live in, and and in the age of multimedia and advancing technology, you can get the best Bible teaching and the best worship music on the planet in an instant, wherever you are. You could be anywhere, and you could get the best of the best on both of those scales, wherever. That's good, but it has an inherent danger. Because all of a sudden now, well, church for me, church is while I'm riding my exercise bike. Church is while I'm checking out news headlines in the early morning, listening on the headphones to the weekend sermon. Church is while I'm crocheting and knitting in the early evening while I'm going to sleep. Churches and church can now be just blended and combined with anything else or everything else that I'm doing in my life. And what happens is that now there's no distinction between, you know, my relationship with God and everything else that I'm doing. One of the advantages that a Christian has that comes to a place like this for a time like this is that you have set aside every other thing in your life. Every other thought, every other hobby, every responsibility, every other thing that you do, and you've said, this time right now is the Lord's and nothing else. And I'm going to hear his voice and zero in on his will for my life, and and that is why I'm going. It's purposeful. It's distinct. And that's a great principle for you and for me. And then the third thing (laughs) that he tells them that also applies to us, the third reason why it's important for us to do this is because it's obedience. Notice again in verse 14, he says, But in the place which the Lord shall choose in one of thy tribes, there you shall offer thy burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I command thee. The Lord also commands the New Testament Christian. It's Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 through 25. He says this, he says, Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. For he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. And so the Lord gives to us this instruction. And he says, listen, for you, New Testament Christian, it's not about the place. God is with you wherever you are. But yet there are distinct advantages and blessings and ordinances attached to what we're doing right now. Coming aside, setting aside the time, gathering together, and keeping our our blades sharp in the word of God, with the people of God, for the will of God. Amen? Well, we'll pause there for this week, and we'll pick up in verse uh, 17 of chapter 12 uh, when we get together This time, next week, he closes with a great verse there at the end, verse 16. He says, only you shall not eat the blood, you shall pour it upon the earth as water. 
He's going to say that again in this same chapter a little bit later on. That was of paramount importance for the Old Testament saints. And it's a principle that carried on into the New Testament as well. Is that whether you're eating an animal that was sacrificed or whether it's something that you hunted, the blood is never to be partaken of. And the reason for it, God says, is because the life is in the blood. And he holds the blood to a higher standard. And, you know, it's interesting, and the worship team can come, the, the, more that we, the more that we learn about blood, the more we realize how true that statement is. My wife just recently had to have blood work done because she's with child, you know, and they do that. And, and, and it was amazing. I was there when the report came back, and they were going through all of the things that they can determine and discover just by looking at the levels of different things in the blood. The blood gives an entire workup of a person's life. It's interesting when we read of Cain who killed his brother Abel, the father spoke from heaven and he said, the voice of your brother's blood cries to me from the ground. And the more we learn about the blood, the more we realize how literal that actually was, how encoded and how detailed and how specific. What's the deal? Why was it so important to God that the blood of the sacrifices be poured upon the ground? The reason is because of the blood of the ultimate sacrifice. The life of the blood of the Lamb of God that would be poured out upon the ground for you and for me. The blood that gives us life. And that blood is the reason why we do all that we do. The blood of Christ. Why don't we pray? Father, we just give thanks to you tonight for given us the word of God. We thank you for these lessons, Lord, as we consider the things that we're learning and the things that are being spoken and shared through Moses and that reach thousands of years into the future of when they were written. And they instruct us and help us to understand more of who you are and give us wisdom for how to lead our lives. And so we pray, Lord, that you would take the things that we heard tonight. We heard about the importance of obedience, but the power of grace. Lord, we ask that you would take and you would apply that to us in such a personal way. I pray for those that might be here tonight, Lord, that have strived in a a pursuit of trying to obey and have come up short and find themselves condemned. That tonight, Lord, they would feel the power of grace. That they would sense the favor and the love of God that's on their lives, not because of what they do, but because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray that you would help us to apply these principles and that they would continually help build us and shape us into the image of what you're seeking to make us. We thank you for this privilege we have of studying your holy word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand together.